I really feel like the biggest task in front of us is, is actually trying to imagine a democracy worth fighting for. Uh, because if the people on the farthest outskirts of society, in the rural black people in Parksdale, Mississippi, where my dad's from, or in Suffolk, Virginia, where my mom's from, or, or even in the rural Midwest, the, the white workers, if they don't believe that our democracy is real for them, then they won't fight for it. And in some instances, they will actively tear it down. And so in addition to just like the work that's in front of us on a day-to-day, we really have to make time to imagine a democracy we're fighting for. Hey, folks. This is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here we look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of Black workers. Well, we are in February now, and we are moving into what passes for normal in today's political space. Less Trump and more traditional GOP brain about bipartisanship and the need for fiscal responsibility. Normal is in air quotes because we are seeing a fierce battle within the GOP that is fundamentally about how much political space do you want to give the QAnon wing of the party? There is zero GOP talk about understanding and rooting out the norms, behaviors, and policies that culminated in the insurrection. And there won't be any such talk. But this normal allows us, the left, to recover as best as we can from various forms of trauma we suffered and figure out how to use our successes from the past year to continue to build on a road towards a progressive government majority. Building that road partially depends upon how well we go beyond the electoral coalition that resulted in the Biden-Harris victory. And our success at extending that coalition will depend upon how we understand the relationship between race and class in the United States and how we organize around that understanding. And by the way, that organizing, it will help us understand better that relationship. Over the next several episodes of Black Work Talk, our guest and I will explore that relationship, hoping to shed light on the interrelationship of race and class, or said more precisely, how racism and capitalism are deeply intertwined. When we have stilted debates over which is primary, race or class, we will never understand well how racism and capitalism actually operate. Today's guest is Erica Smiley. Smiley is the executive director of Jobs of Justice. She has been with Jobs of Justice for over 15 years in a variety of capacities. Prior to joining the organization, Smiley was an organizer for for a variety of unions and community-based organizations. She has written about the need to go beyond the red state, blue state way of viewing today's political terrain so we can actually understand the nuances that exist on the ground. She has also talked about the need to develop 21st century forms of collective bargaining to match our 21st century political economy. I've enjoyed these writings and look forward to our conversation. But I do want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk, we are committed to developing a vibrant conversation bringing you the key voices building Black worker power in the workplace and in the neighborhoods. Bringing you the best guests and the most timely discussions takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution, small or large, and become part of our community to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. So Smiley, I'm so glad you're on my show. Welcome to Black Work Talk. Hey, glad to be here, Steve. Um, 
It's a crazy goddamn year, you know. That? <laughs> you know? Um, no, seriously, you know? You know? I've never seen bad shit, but if I did, I would think it was crazy. Hey, you might be seeing it, man. You might be seeing it, okay? Um, but one thing, though, we are moving into the second month of the year, you know, and 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 what I want to do is talk a bit more about the way forward. What I want to do with the next couple episodes of, of the podcast is have more discussions over how race and class come together to shape the context for our organizing and how we organize given that. I don't want to super abstract. I want to kind of root in the real world, but behind the kind of the discussions of real world stuff, this notion of that race and capitalism impacts black workers and all workers, to be honest. And so that's kind of in the background to all my questions. So we're going to talk some, see how it goes, and it should be a good, great conversation. I guess it was back in April of 18. God, it's almost three years ago now, dude. Damn. Mm-hmm. I know. But you, you, you talked about, it was in the context of the Red State Teachers Organizing. Mm-hmm. And and I thought it was fascinating how you began to look at the questions of democracy in general, kind of 20th century democracy in general, and the questions of the protections from that. And then you use that lens to reanalyze the, the, the country. You know, we get, we get wrapped in this kind of rest day, blue state stuff, right? Which is always a bad way to look at it. We can blame Obama for that. One of the many things we can blame Obama off the record, by the way. <laughs> blame um, Obama. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, it was in 2004. We had one American in rest day, blue state sort of thing. We speak in, in Boston, the convention. Oh, I don't but, even um, remember that. But yeah, I hear but, you. Um, yeah. Well, I'm a little old. I remember things. <laughs> but, 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 but seriously, you know, you, you, you talked about there's a better lens ways to look at these states. And you talked really through the lens that I said of kind of where we've seen tradition of mm-hmm. democracy and where we see the, the residuals of those, those traditions existing. And so talk a bit about the whole notion of looking at the world through that lens instead of looking at regions and, and the old school way of looking at it. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was at the convention in Boston. Oh, wow. Okay. And I remember watching the speech, but that's how caught up I was in other things. That's, that's how you can tell I was in my twenties. I just <laughs> I was paying attention to other stuff. Uh, so I, I'm going to go back and look at it, but this is this is how I came to this. Um, the red state, blue state paradigm, in some ways, erases the potential of of people to you know fight along our shared values and their self interests uh, by basically saying here are the places where something is possible where something progressive is possible, these blue states. This is where we can do stuff. The rest, you know, unless we can one day change it blue, we can't do anything there. And that is just, not only is it um, limiting and unstrategic, it's actually insulting. It's basically like you've given up on entire swaths of the population. And I'm not just talking about Black people. I'm also talking about uh, working class white people, immigrant communities, second generation, third generation communities that have been in the South and the Southwest uh, and the Midwest. And, you know, if you just look at red state, blue state, then Arizona and Georgia would never be possible to do anything, let alone the fact that they became, quote unquote, blue states in this 2020 election. Um, you know, I think there's a there's a such a limiting dynamic. Certainly when you're looking at the election of two candidates, fine you know, this is the system we have. We have to demarcate it somehow on the map. But when it comes to identifying places to lean in to organize, we actually need to be a little more sophisticated about how we relate to people in different regions. 
So certainly in the states that are traditionally blue in the electoral map, uh, I started to think, you know, what is it about those places that people think, why is it that people think those are the places where we can win stuff? And it's because those tend to be the places where we have access to 20th century uh, forms of power, where uh, the New Deal and the collective bargaining infrastructure that came out of it still work, where you can win at the bargaining table, where typically you can win in elections if you just mobilize a majority to the polls, and that could actually change things uh, in some way. I, you know, Obviously, this is somewhat generalizing as there are problems even in those systems, but just to kind of like translate that they still have access to form, some form of 20th century power and 20th century platforms for democracy. Um, and, and that's great. We should continue to win there. We should continue to organize to win based on those, those systems of democracy in those places. But the, the nuance is, is that the other places uh, are not a monolith and that within the context of, of those other places, it's important to understand what their relationship is to those 20th century platforms of democracy to even understand how we can then approach them. For example, there's a difference between how you would approach a place like Indiana, Michigan, or Wisconsin, who just recently lost access to some of those 20th century platforms. They just recently became right to work for less. They you know, have created all kinds of limitations to uh, participation and, versus a place that has long lost if they ever really had access to those forms of uh, democracy, such as my home state of North Carolina. And the difference is, is that in one place, we have to validate the loss as we begin to try to imagine what could come in its place or how it could be replaced. Uh, whereas in the place in the Southern states and in the places where those platforms haven't necessarily been available to us, um, you would be surprised at the imagination that many people have for something new, something that could actually work for all of us. And if you just see those places as backwards, right-wing, whatever they went for, fill-in-the-blank, right-wing candidate, you're going to actually miss that fact. Um, you know, Sarita, Sarita Gupta and I authored a, a book that hopefully will be out in the spring of next year. And part of the, one of the maps I like to show from that book is the, the electoral map of West Virginia in 2018 and the map of the first counties to walk out in the teacher actions oh, wow. in 2018. And the first three counties are at the kind of the bottom of the states, like Wyoming, Mingo, and I forget the other one, but they're like right there at the bottom. It's like kind of coal country where they have a deep history of um, organizing and movement, movement organizing. And uh, those counties were red. Like the state went for Senator Manchin. It was a Democrat senator, right? Like overall, you could argue that of course, not necessarily being the most progressive of Democrats, especially today, like the, the state went Democrat and these three counties were very deeply red. They deeply did not go in there. But if you if that's your only calculation of what's possible in those three states, you'll completely miss the fact that they were the first to walk out, literally walked out of school, had snowplows driving their way so that they could go to Charleston and fight for the rights of teachers and their students. And so the case that I'm making is as we as movement leaders and organizers are trying to lay the path for trying to build on this great project that is a, an inclusive multiracial democracy, the lens of the electoral map is one lens, but it is far too narrow 
to actually help us define how we should work and engage people in any given place. Now, as you're talking, I, I thought about a, a lot of things. I really like what you said in terms of of the red, red, blue way of looking at the world misses the nuance that exists in our world. Mm-hmm. And I thought of a lot of things when you were talking about the, the book that you and have coming out and, and the map of, of West Virginia. It'd be fascinating to have a good overlay of the history of the, the United Mine Workers. Mm, oh yeah, and, and kind of see how how what kind of residual things are happening there that can be influencing. I remember reading some stuff about the upcoming elections um, at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And for people who are kind of away from the details, Alabama's red state. Red means redneck. Red red means you no. Know, Right. Nothing's progressive, right. but as we, as you know from reading more history, that Birmingham, which is kind of the the, the right next to Bessemer where the warehouse is, has a has a strong union history. Yeah, steel and, workers. And, yep, miners and mining workers. And so they talked about a lot of the, the the people in the Amazon warehouse have family members who have union histories. That's right. And and I, I spent a long time in Houston, Texas, and one thing that was interesting there is I got there in in the mid-70s, is really in Houston and going a bit over towards Louisiana, and they call the Golden Triangle. Mm-hmm. You had a decent amount of labor history there as well because of the organized around oil mm-hmm. and around the, the steel factories there and so forth. And so you see a lot of places where there's histories that can be drawn upon, not in a mechanical sense, but in a real breathing, living sense. It's a really important thing to do with what you're talking about. That's very true. I mean, some of the uh, women I spoke with in West Virginia, you know, had had relatives in recent history that could remember uh, when they were children, the Battle of Blair Mountain, or oh, wow. uh, like you said, you know, thinking about, actually, I'll, I'll take a, a second here just to unabashedly promote Lane Wyndham's book, Knocking on Labor's Door. Wait, is she, wait, she, is she paying for that first? <laughs> you know what? Well, we'll say she's paid me in other ways besides money. More than I can repay. She's fantastic. But her, I know. her book has, you know, what a lot of people miss, which is these amazing Southern black-led labor struggles, you know, from the oil fights in Louisiana to the auto fights in Georgia to the uh, the Navy Yard fight in Virginia Beach, you know, all of these like black-led Southern struggles from the 70s and 80s, as if, you know, we often gloss over labor history as if like the period between uh, the, the 70s and, and now didn't exist, like it was just a dead period. And there's so much we can learn uh, from struggles of black workers in regions where we have long lost if we ever had access to some of the 20th century uh, infrastructure that has been, you know, practiced, almost taken for granted in, in places like Chicago and New York. The other no, thing, I think, okay. go on, I'm sorry, go on. Well, the other thing is just that, um, just talking again about this, the relationship between this history, because I agree it's not, it's not mechanical, but I also don't want to gloss over it. Um, just going back to my own experience in North Carolina, you know, I used to always think, and I think a lot of people even in the movement today still think of like the activist hub as being like Raleigh-Durham, the triangle of North mm-hmm. Carolina. And it is, you know, it's like a lot of activism there. It's a lot of good progressive movement stuff there. Um, but then, you know, I looked at Greensboro and I, I kind of realized kind of with some, not without uh, pride, that when Greens, when people in Greensboro moved, they moved. You know, when I think about the sit-ins, when I think about the Greensboro massacre, even the Kmart struggle that I was a part of in the mid-90s, that that uh, it's not just a, a rah-rah activism around various progressive issues. There's a, 
a, a movement, kind of a historical memory, a shared memory of what it really means to move together and the risks that are associated. It's not taken lightly. But once that decision is made, there is a level of unity and discipline that uh, still gives me pause to this day. It's those places that I don't want to count out. That's important, Smiley, because those kind of, you said, deeply felt memories of struggle, Mm -hmm. that makes the current struggle stronger, which means that our power is greater. Because oftentimes we have kind of, I'll call it in a very kind of snarky, but it's kind of shallow, black, white, united fight sort of stuff, no real roots to it. Mm-hmm. Our power, our, our power is shallow. Mm-hmm. And so our wins will be shallow. But to the extent that we have the kind of deeply rooted sense of, of community and activism and rolling forward, those deeper roots mean deeper power, mean deeper, deeper successes. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about kind of Lane mentioning different kind of black labor struggles. I haven't read the book. I haven't read the book. Haven't read the book. Lane, sorry about that. But, but you know, <laughs> it'd be interesting to get a sense of how those labor struggles relate to community struggles. Oh, yeah. Because it's not a brick wall between, oh, I stopped working, have a new way of looking at the world, right? right? But the way I see the world on the job, so I see the world off the job as well. There'd be an important connection to, to talk about. Yeah, I mean, this is whole worker organizing. That's that's like what that's what my organization is about in, in many ways at Jobs with Justice, is that there actually isn't this there there is there's no barrier between workers in their community. They're this the same thing, you know, you know, a worker has so many different identities and very rarely is the top one worker to be fair, right? You know, there's parent, there's congregant, there's soccer coach, there's whatever, fill in the blank caregiver. Um, And so in many ways, like even when we talk about labor community solidarity, it's, it's not just about going around and finding all the community organizations and all the faith institutions and all the unions and getting them in a room. It's actually about asking workers, okay, who is your union? Where do you go to church? What community groups are you a part of? Like, and bringing that into the room such that uh, there's a, an ability for us to, to organize our whole selves and to truly lift up our entire communities up through our wins. I think that's actually um, fundamental to how we, think about the, how we think about the work. Another thing I wanted to add, and this is just based on... Uh, uh, some of the, you know, something you said earlier made me think a little bit about this idea of the Sankofa and really needing to look backwards, to look forward. And I've been thinking a lot and kind of meditating a lot on this idea of the, of the great reconstruction, that it was really the last moment in American history where there was kind of a, a national call, not without complication, but like a kind of a national alignment around this project of building an inclusive multiracial democracy. This understanding that what had been established by the founding fathers was both insufficient and incomplete and certainly not <laughs> inclusive. And, you know, you see, you know, this is the, the first time we're grappling with the legacy of slavery. And so like in the 1860s, 1870s, this is when we start passing amendments like the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery and all forms of forced labor, the 14th Amendment to define citizenship, the 15th Amendment, which started defining who could vote. And the clarity that these were the lanes that define democracy, that it wasn't just about voting once a year, but actually about civic participation and the ability to uh, participate in governing our labor and governing over our economic relationships as well. 
of course, uh, that was quickly pushed back and, you know, in the great redemption, as we all learned in Southern social studies class. But, um, you know, part of the point of, of even mentioning that is that our entire history since then has been some elements of our movement trying to expand access in all three of those lanes and our opposition actively trying to roll them back, some to pre-Civil War interpretations. And this is a moment where if we don't actually recognize that that is the fundamental thing we're fighting for, then uh, we will lose. And I, I don't remember which professor I heard once say it, uh, someone I think Ken Burns was interviewing was that, you know, the, the Civil War never ended uh, and it could still be lost. And I think that there's a level of clarity in this moment that our task can't just be going back to the way things were under Obama, going back to the way things were in the New Deal. Um, but actually, we have to approach the work of building power for workers, black workers, but also everybody you, under the framework and using the guideline that we are taking on the task of trying to continue to build, perhaps for the first time, uh, an inclusive multiracial democracy in this country. Once I thought about you talking, you know, you've written and spoken about the, the need for new collective bargaining regimes. Mm-hmm. How would you blend together the need for new collective bargaining regimes and the need to fight racism too. Because, you know, history impacts the present, right? Mm-hmm. Impacts the future. And so if we talk about correctly the need for a new way to have collective bargaining power existing, we also need to talk simultaneously about the need to fight white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And so as you, as you think through the unfolding of this new regime, what it might look like and how do you deal with issues of fighting with supremacy simultaneously with building the new regime? Well, I think it's central. And I think that not doing so will guarantee our defeat, hands down. I think that we have to create a vision, and through that vision, campaigns and day-to-day strategies that help to uh, create a an imagination for a democracy and a society that we can all see ourselves in. And that requires organizing in ways that align our self-interest and our shared values against those who want to exploit our, our labor. And while it may not be apparent in one given shop, one given warehouse, or any given community, um, it doesn't. you don't have to go up that many steps to see how many executives, corporate leaders are actually exploiting both uh, black, brown, and many working class white communities, and then blaming the other uh, for, for their tribulation. Particularly vulnerable to this are, are white people, um, and playing on the racism of white people to, uh, to, to really think that the problem are, are black people or migrants or people who are not like them. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the critical project at Jobs with Justice, Part of what we like to imagine when it comes to this idea of expanding collective bargaining is to actually see the practice as what it was always meant to be, which is an ability for, for people to come together based on their shared economic interests and to negotiate based on their power as workers to negotiate 
in, in with their employers and others uh, for some shared uh, wealth, some shared access of the wealth that they're creating. And the thing is, is that through labor law, that tactic was narrowed. It was kind of positioned in this very specific framework for a very specific type of negotiations to happen between a very specific definition of an employer and an employee. And what we say is that actually the tactic should be applied far beyond that. That's just one way. We actually should be able to come together collectively and negotiate based on economic relationships that go far beyond the direct employer-employee. We should be able to negotiate with the ultimate profiteer of our labor. We should be able to um, negotiate with economic relationships outside of employment, such as housing and debt and uh, health care. We should be able to um, you know, at even just the traditional uh, traditional bargaining tables, we should be able to negotiate for issues that impact our community beyond uh, the shop floor. And so, you know, part of what we're ultimately saying is like, let's not give up our power. Our power is in organizing along these lines, along economic relationships of our shared interests and values, and then actively negotiating with capital on the other side based on the power we have when we come together under that framework. And that instead of just seeing it as a law passed uh, in 1945, that there's actually, you know, people, workers were coming together to try to collectively negotiate their conditions far before uh, that was ever, ever institutionalized and codified. You know, one thing about it is, is the value of, of workplace organizing mm-hmm. is that it's a building block of civil society. And to the extent that you have a different, elements of that that are strong, mm-hmm. it's easy to build movements to change the world. That's right. And, and when people are more atomized, then they are often themselves and Fox News are help break loose. And, and so in some ways, the, the value of, of finding new ways to organize around new ways of approaching collective bargaining and, and maybe broader issues is not just the policy wins, I'll call it, it's also stitching together a new sense of community that allows mm-hmm. us to, to even having greater and greater victories. I was reading an article, God, maybe 20, 15 years ago, um, and the guy's title was kind of, we must win and build. Mm-hmm. The idea we had to win today, but winning ways to be stronger tomorrow as well. Of course. And that has to be kind of a framework how we look at certain things. You, know, you, you mentioned, um, we talked we talk a lot about racism today in this conversation. But we have racism, and then we have racism, okay? <laughs> um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say we have good and bad racism, by the way, I was going to say, like, which one of those are they, <laughs> how are they measuring? Or to be kind of clear, you know, I tell people we have barbarians at the gates, literally. Uh-huh, okay? yeah, yeah. And, and, and so we're facing this period where we have this very, unfortunately, vibrant, white, nationalist, authoritarian, violent movement. Yeah that really complicates our world. Because on one hand, that has to stop. That has to go, basically. You know, mm-hmm. it's all hands on deck, united front against those folk. But at the same time, some of the people who will oppose the white nationalists and their assault on democracy have their own ways they assault democracy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so how do we, how do we kind of go, how do you see us going forward given that kind of delicate act that we have to have to, to, to perform. Well, I, what do you think? I appreciate your framing of this because what you're 
ultimately saying, or at least what I'm taking from it, is that you're you're describing the nuance. Uh, between you know between our opposition that it's not a monolith there are active fascists and white nationalists coming at us with their pitchforks there are business uh, right people on the business right who claim to be with us and will put black lives matter on their twitter page but will fire any black worker who tries to ask for personal protective equipment during the era of covid um, there's the evangelical right which is you know, in some ways creating moral validity for these uh, terrorist actions that a lot of the fascists are, are waging. And then, of course, you have like the radical libertarian right. I like to call it the big ideas right, which, you know, is very clear that democracy is a threat to uh, their ultimate aims of, of individual liberty and wealth building and self-sufficiency and all this stuff. But, you know, sees the what the white nationalists are doing as a real threat to that and tries to align their interests with uh, with us on social issues, when in fact we know that underneath that, that's that's not actually helpful at all. And so, you know, on the one hand, it's really easy to get confused by this and feel like we have to just fight uh, the white nationalists, or we could let the police fight the white nationalists like they should. They they should be fighting the white nationalists instead of fighting us, and actually try to take advantage of what are some real fissures in our opposition. I mean, this is the first time I can remember in a long time that uh, the right is so fractured. And part of what's going to be important for us in this moment when we're thinking about organizing and collective bargaining, when we're thinking about um, elevating black strategies for building worker power, uh, is that we have to do these in ways that take advantage of these fissures. For example, if Amazon is going to claim that Black Lives Matter <laughs> after you know the egregious murder of George Floyd on national television, then we have to then hold them to the fire, this vulnerable point in their their reputation to say, if you really think that Black Lives Matter, you need to support Black workers who are organizing and trying to collectively negotiate safer conditions who are essential and are making you billions of dollars. Jeff Bezos alone made $20 billion just the first three months of the pandemic. And now he's, you know, retiring or whatever. But like, that's, that's just unheard of talking about profiting from our pain. So if you're really going to say that you are want to want to align with us against the the crazy mob that's trying to take over the Capitol and murder Nancy Pelosi, uh, then that actually means that you have to be with us when it comes to to the issues even on your shop floor. Bezos is is notorious example of this as well, like in terms of Amazon and the Bessemer organizing drive that you mentioned, where you've got a, a workforce that's very black. And um, you've got a company now saying that that in November was all about mail-in ballots in the political election, now saying to the union members there shouldn't be any mail-in ballots because that would increase uh, opportunities for fraud. So using the same messages they were fighting against in the political election to, to try to destroy the union election of particularly black people in Alabama at their warehouse, over 5,000 black workers. So, you know, I think uh, these are, on the one hand, disgusting. On the other hand, if we as a movement can be sophisticated and take advantage of those fissures to continue to drive our way in and to define wins, not just as the issues we're able to win, the number of masks we're able to get to workers, but actually to define win as how closer we got to being able to sit uh, in active governing position within each of these companies or industries, 
then I think I think there's an opportunity for us that, that we can't miss. I think we many of us will remember back in the 2008-2009 economic crisis and bailout that we missed an opportunity uh, when an industry was in crisis. Uh, we bailed them out. We didn't ask for any form of public ownership out of that bailout. We didn't ask. Like I was waiting for the election for us to, to nominate certain people to sit on the board. Um, and we, we didn't make any demands of that nature, any kind of demands of public ownership or public governing of the auto industry. We we can't ever make that mistake again. Any company that's getting or any industry that's getting bailed out due to this terrible global pandemic must also then you know, have some pathway for workers to participate in its governing structures. And any company that's claiming to be in support of Black lives or against these fascist assaults on our our country and our institutions has to actually then model that in their own co- company and industry, modeled what democracy could look like by increasing worker engagement. And that most direct path to that in a place like Bessemer is actually recognizing the union that the workers are demanding and um, negotiating with them in good faith. As you're talking, I was thinking of that. Um, I wasn't around for the discussion that did or did not happen in 08, 09. But to me, some, <laughs> but to me sometimes our lack of raising certain questions are a function of our limited imagination and or our understanding of a lack of power. And so I think about some things you're talking about in terms of the the enemies inside of our tent, you might say, who are against the barbarians, but not for pro-workers. Yeah. A lot of it has to be, a lot of it has to, we need to look at the question of how do we actually organize our folk and around what issues and how do we actually organize them. And so if we tell our folk the, main, the sole enemy are the barbarians, then it's harder to push for unionized workers mm-hmm. because we've gotten people activated around the barbarians and all of a sudden these people are our friends, but we don't see how in other regions they aren't. So how do we kind of put forth a view of the world and organize around it so that it has an, ex- an expansive view of what the new world looks like so we can say, well, today, Basil's might be our friend, with air quotes, by the way, around the question of the barbarians, but we know that tomorrow morning he won't be because of how he's treating black workers and, and Bessemer and, and so forth. And I think sometimes we don't have we don't put forth that sort of nuanced view of our dreams, mm-hmm. and so we get caught in this place where we have limited power because we fought hard off of a narrow narrative. So our mandate is 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 smaller than it might actually be otherwise. I mean that's interesting, Steve. I. I want to think about it. I mean, I think on the one hand, just to stick with Jeff Bezos and the Amazon example, you know, they clearly had a role in creating the barbarians. I mean, they sold mm-hmm. barbarian paraphernalia. <laughs> they wouldn't, you know, despite us saying they shouldn't allow that into the marketplace, they did. You know, they're, they kicked Parler off of Amazon Web Services, which they should have, and they did. But they, it took this for that to happen. Like they, 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 did, they just now kicked them off. So there is something about recognizing the role of some of those business actors, business capitalists in creating the barbarians, that they aren't completely disconnected despite attempts to separate themselves. And more and more people are even seeing that now, both in terms of politicians and Congress 
uh, beginning to soften to it and try to rewrite history about what happened and it wasn't that bad, as well as people like Bezos going from being so pro uh, mail-in ballots to being against mail-in ballots when it comes to union workers, black workers. Um, the other thing, Steve, that it makes me think is that I, you know, we are so good at talking about the problem and so bad at trying to even imagine what it could look like. I have found that when we get into a space, when workers get into a room together and start to imagine what it could look like, a lot of barriers really fall. You take the issue of like the care economy and thinking about how we're supporting workers, particularly women workers, particularly black women workers, and being able to stay in the job market in the context of COVID or any other crisis that strikes. Uh, you actually need child care and you actually need these services, what would it look like if we said, hey, you know, every neighborhood, every apartment complex, like part of your rent goes to pay for child care. I was in Berlin a few years ago. That was just the norm. Every building had a cafeteria and a preschool. And if you lived there, you that's where your kid went to school. I mean, you know, these things that, you know, the right will come at us very quickly and say, ah, oh, socialist propaganda or whatever. When you're actually in a room with working people, it doesn't actually seem that radical. And it actually seems like the thing we need if we were uh, building the country and the society we all would actually like to see ourselves in. And so I think the other thing, just in addition to some of the strategic campaign approaches that I mentioned earlier, be it around collective bargaining or even like you know, workers organizing at Amazon and really splitting and, and widening the fissures between the different elements of the right. Uh, I really feel like the biggest task in front of us is, is actually trying to imagine a democracy worth fighting for. Uh, because if the people on the farthest outskirts of society, in the rural black people in Clarksdale, Mississippi, where my dad's from, or in Suffolk, Virginia, where my mom's from, or, or even in the rural Midwest, the, the white workers, if they don't believe that our democracy is real for them, then they won't fight for it. And in some instances, they will actively tear it down. And so in addition to just like the work that's in front of us on a day to day, we really have to make time to imagine a democracy we're fighting for. That is so true. Smiley, I have some closing questions. But quickly, what got you in the movement? What was your, what was your aha moment that got you in the moment? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I think I have more of the aha that happened later. It wasn't so much an aha in the moment. But I think I can authentically say today that I was uh, deeply uh, impacted by my first, what I can at least, the first action that I remember participating in. Uh, and that was with my church. So I'm originally from Greensboro, North Carolina. Oh, wow. And I grew up going to St. James Presbyterian Church. I uh, still have a lot of pride there, even though I can't say I'm particularly active <laughs> these days. But, um, but you know, it was a strike of Kmart workers, and our church mobilized in solidarity with those workers, along with, uh, with other churches and other clergy. And, uh, you know, at the time, I didn't know that they were fighting for a union, with Act Two or anyone else. I didn't know anything about unions, really, except for maybe what I'd read in history books. Uh, but I did know that they were being treated unfairly. These were primarily Black women, some of whom 
were a part of some of our congregations. And, uh, and that, that ultimately, I think what I learned from that was that collective action got the goods. It got it done. And I realized later, you know, I learned that North Carolina has one of the lowest union densities in the country, if not the lowest, depending on, I think we go back and forth with Puerto Rico, maybe. And, um, you know, I realized that when I left the state and went to organize in Maryland and D.C., eventually went up to New York, I realized that people had access to forms of power that my communities didn't necessarily have access to. And I felt like that wasn't wasn't fair to 20th century versions of of organizing collective bargaining to uh, a voting system that wasn't essentially rigged um, and gerrymandered. And so I wanted to change that. I wanted to actually build 21st century systems for power that uh, all of us had access to. And and that's how I got activated into to fighting for workers' rights and ultimately doing this through the lens of trying to expand democracy. That flows into another question. How do you define Black freedom? I think Black freedom or freedom period is the ability to live free of exploitation, to be able to live and act authentically to who you are, to um, to work in ways that are on purpose for you, to contribute to society in ways that are authentic to to us as, as individuals. I think that's, and, and to also have like a real honest understanding of how we got here, how we got to freedom. So it's not so much erasing the past, but being really clear about it and living uh, free from the shackles that held us back in the past. That, that's good. Um, what are you reading, by the way? Question number two, what are you reading nowadays? Oh, God. Well, <laughs> right now I'm reading the new one by Mike Birbiglia because I have a toddler and I need support uh, from other parents. But I'm also really excited. Next on my shelf is Transcendence by Yad Jesse. I think after after home going, I just I have to read whatever she writes from now on. I was so moved okay. by it. Okay. And how about music? I, I love, love music. Okay. And me, music keeps me going sometimes when shit is bad. What music drives you down? What music drives you? Drives me? Not drives me yeah. down, just drives me, period. It keeps you going. Oh, my goodness. Okay, this is going to sound hilarious because I'm not actually necessarily a gospel music fan. But mm-hmm. uh, that song that was reintroduced to me, I remember it, but it was reintroduced to me from Lovecraft Country in one of the scenes, uh, everything that... Everything that the devil stole, God gave back to me. I mean, mm-hmm. it is a hype gospel song. And I every time I feel down or like, you know, someone's getting on my nerves or someone's being a bad actor, I play that, that I rock out in the car to it. And it just like, it totally fills me up. It's very cathartic. <laughs> so when you say that Lovecraft Country saved a sinner and brought it back across the guy. <laughs> I mean, they also brought back like Sinner Man, Nina Simone. I mean, the soundtrack... <laughs> Of that show gave me life. Yeah. That sounds great. It's fine. This has been phenomenal. We've been on a lot of conference calls and all. We've got to catch up. We've got to catch up. Oh, man. This has been a good chance to catch up. This has been so good. It's been Believe wonderful. Good Thanks for uh, inviting me to do this. This is great. I can't wait to uh, listen to the rest of the, the series. Thanks for coming in and um, be well, okay? It was fun talking with Smiley, fun and insightful. I particularly like discussing the need to go beyond the stale red state, blue state lens and 
recognize the diversity of individual groups and interests within red and blue states. This nuance is essential to any 50 state strategy toward gaining a progressive governing majority. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. I hope this podcast can grow to be a part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as you build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. Until next episode, stay safe and be well.